So not long ago, I was listening to a pastor from Pakistan speak, and he was sharing how he had been ministering to um, Pakistanis. Okay, it's a Muslim country, not right next to Afghanistan, and there are a lot of similarities. There are there's, there's plenty of differences too. Taliban starting to migrate that way, so you've got some of that playing in. But um, this pastor has been mobilizing pastors in Pakistan. And so he begins to unpack going back to 2019 when the area of related churches, ARC is the acronym, in, based in Charleston, partnered with, began partnering with this pastor to reach Christians in Pakistan. And he began to then list the challenges they've been facing ever since. First challenge really hit right there in early 2020, and we know it very well. COVID-19 hits, and immediately they start quarantining, and churches here shut down. And so the, the partnering ministries here start telling this pastor who they're partnering with there, you know, you just need to quarantine and, and isolate just like everybody else. There's no money coming into the churches in America because they're not meeting. So just, just chill and let's just let this pass. And he goes, didn't the first century Christians run into Rome when the plague hit, when everybody else was leaving? And, you know, the Christians on, in America were like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, there's no money coming in because, you know, the churches aren't meeting. And he's like, we still go. And so instead of isolating and quarantining, he started ministering to people who were afraid, who were quarantining themselves in a country where pastors were not working together at that time. And he began to reach out and encourage boots on the ground. Okay, And this is, I, I, I make him sound like a missionary because he really was a missionary to his own people. He was a Pakistani, but he was... Um, you know, a pastor, a Christian pastor in a Muslim country. And so he's doing this. So he said, after COVID-19 hit, and then 2020, when it really got, 2021, we had refugees start flooding into our country from Afghanistan. And you and I remember talking, some of you remember talking about when, when the U.S. tried to leave Afghanistan, we were at the airport, the Kabul, um, that whole two-day Taliban got emboldened and started making that really difficult. And so while we get, were able to get out tens of thousands of Afghanis who were friendly and worked with the U.S. government throughout the 20 years there, there were a lot that were so afraid of the Taliban that they said, well, i got to get out of the country. And so they started to leave the country, and some of them went to Pakistan. Well, Pakistan and Afghanistan have this arrangement, and they don't take each other's people. And so when this pastor went to the government in Pakistan and said, um, I hear there are Afghani refugees. How can we help? The Pakistani government said, what refugees? Even though they were obvious. And so it took a while for them to convince them that we just want to help and we are paying for what we're giving them and doing for them. And so they continued to minister COVID-19, now Af um, Afghani uh, refugees. And then 22 happened. And in 22... Their country had massive flooding, massive flooding. What is it? Uh, a third of the country was submerged. Every province in the country was affected. $30 billion later, 
right, of destruction. 145 hospitals were destroyed. Um, I, I can't remember all the numbers. 1,800 people died. So this was major, biggest flood they'd ever experienced, I guess, since Noah. And, and, and so devastation and destruction, okay? And then last year, some of you may remember from the news that um, because of a misunderstanding about somebody, what somebody wrote on a piece of paper about Muhammad, and the piece of paper happened to be a page out of the Quran, slandering Muhammad, placed at the door of a church on the ground, found by a Muslim, which triggered outrage and persecution. And 25 churches were burned, 400 homes were looted or burned, and Christians were hiding because they were so afraid for their lives. And this pastor keeps he's talking about all these challenges, and he talked about how in all of those situations God provided so that they could, as they ministered to Muslims and Christians. And through that time, pastors began to work together, and people began to come to Christ, and the church has come alive in Pakistan through suffering. Peter continues in this letter to talk about how is it as we as Christians, when we go through suffering, how we live when we suffer. Okay, And he's talking about when you share your faith, there's suffering and persecution that comes with that. Of course, he's talking about that. But he's, he's talking about all suffering other than suffering that comes from as a result of evil, not suffering that comes when it's a consequence of sin, but suffering that happens to Christians. Okay, Sometimes we don't even know why. All of that can redeem. God can use all of that to change lives. And he's going to unpack in this passage this attitude that we are to have that gives us what we need and, and the tools that we need to go with that attitude that help us think about how do I do this? How do I live? Because I'm guessing that most of us right now are suffering in some way. It may be very small. It may be very big. It may be short-term. It may be long-term. It may be emotional, physical, mental, spiritual. I don't know, but all of us can relate to suffering. And if, you have, if you're not going through it, your turn will come. It's part of the human condition right now. And so these words from Peter are, here's how you live, not just in this world, but in light of the end. Okay, And in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near. Peter does. And he talks about the judgment of God right before that to say, yes, this is suffering, but there is an expiration date on suffering. Did you know that? There's an expiration date. We are one day closer to that expiration date. In the meantime, how are we as Christ followers to live? This is what he's talking about today. The last thing I want to share about that pastor and him talking was one of the questions that was asked near the end. They asked him, do you have any personal challenges in your life that you would like us to pray for breakthrough for? And he actually said, actually, yeah, I do. Um, my two sons, um, they were they both profess Christ, but they just don't seem to have that. They don't really seem to get it. Okay? They're not, you know, they call themselves Christians in a Muslim country. And I'm going to tell you, that's doing something, right? That's putting a target on yourself. At the same time, he says, they don't really quite seem to understand. And he said, but I was praying about this and thinking about this one day, and, and the Lord spoke to me. 
And this was before he was pastoring. This is when he was doing relief work, but he wasn't pastoring. And he said, um, the Lord spoke to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm helping your people. And he said, basically, I want you to, I want you to build my house. Yeah, but I, 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 and he had some explanation for why he couldn't do that or shouldn't do that. And the Lord says, if you will build my house, I will build yours. And so he surrendered to the ministry as a pastor and began to disciple and reach out to um, people who were far from God but close to him. And he's been doing that ever since. And he's seeing God move. And his, one of his sons has been in two car accidents since then. And he said, but it's almost like that's what it's taking to wake him up to what God has called him to. God is working. And he works through, among other things, suffering. And sometimes he works through Christians who suffer. And I've heard somebody say, God never wastes a hurt. And I don't know what you're hurting from, but well, maybe the question you should ask yourself is, Lord, how can I work with you to help you use this for something good? So let's go to chapter 4, 1 Peter, and let's walk through. And let me just show you where what Peter has to say about this. He's really continuing to unpack his theology on suffering. Next week, he'll finish this up by saying the relationship between suffering and glory, which sounds kind of weird. Um, and he'll kind of hint to that in here, but in the next verses that we'll pick up in verse 12 on next week, that's what he'll, he'll talk about. But for today, he says in the beginning of chapter 4, therefore, and he's referring back to what we talked about last week, therefore, in light of that, since Christ suffered in his body, he's pointing to the cross, since Christ suffered before and on the cross in his body physically, this is what you're to do, okay? And this is the number one way we live in light of the end. We arm yourselves also with the same attitude that Christ had, okay? Now, I want to pause there, and I want you to go with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, which so hang a left, go past Hebrews and some of these other small letters and find Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And the reason is there's a word that that attitude word is used in, Paul uses it when he's talking to Christians in Philippi. And this was a passage that Christians probably quoted in their worship services regularly if they didn't sing it as a hymn, okay? And some translations will say attitude, some translations will say mind. You've probably heard people talk about the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the mindset, the thinking. This is what it's talking about, starting in verse 5. Philippians 2.5, in, in your relationships, Paul is talking to believers, in your relationships with one another, that means with other Christians, have the same mindset or attitude as Jesus Christ, as Christ Jesus. Now, what is that attitude? What is that mindset? Now he's going to describe it. Who being in, the, in very nature God, okay? So right there we see who being in very nature God means Jesus is divine, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped. He's talking about while human, he didn't avail himself of the divine characteristics that he never lost, but chose to walk instead as a human. Rather, he made himself nothing. Sometimes we hear he emptied himself. The word is kenosis. He emptied himself. Rather, he made himself nothing, and so instead of being God in the flesh and, and proud of it, 
he, he took on the form of a servant. So he says, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, fully human, fully divine. He humbled himself and beco- by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay? So he served us to death. All right? So that's the attitude. Now let's go back to 4, 2 P- 1 Peter 4.1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude. Do you hear it now? That we just read out of Philippians is what he's saying we should arm ourselves with. Okay? Become that. And here's why. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. What does that mean? Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. If you are willing to arm yourself with an attitude that embraces the suffering that comes our way, not going to seek it. We don't love suffering. Nobody enjoys suffering. That's by definition. You don't enjoy suffering unless you're, you're not quite all connected here, right? The attitude, though, is that I'm going to suffer for good for others, I'm going to allow God to use the suffering in my life, or I'm going to live in such a way that if suffering comes, I'm not going to stop doing what I know I should do because it's causing me suffering, okay? Otherwise, all those who died for Christ, all the martyrs in in history who died for Christ, and all they had to do was recant, they would have recanted and they would not have died. You know, Polycarp is a disciple a famous disciple of John. Okay, so we know about John. He's in the Bible. Polycarp, not in the Bible. But in the mid-100s, so second century, he was someone who had sat under John as a disciple of John, and he was 80-something years old when they strapped him to a pole to burn him because he wouldn't deny Christ. And they gave him one more chance and said, all you have to do is recant, deny Christ, we'll set you free. And he said, I've been following him faithfully for my 85 years, and he has been faithful to me. Why now would I betray my Lord and Savior? And then he prayed for God to just receive him, and, and, and they killed him. He suffered and died. And I guarantee you those words he spoke did to people who were there to witness his martyrdom, okay? Now, that's the extreme, right? God doesn't call us all to literally do that, but he does call us all to that attitude, that mindset. Imagine a church full of people who were all really willing to die for Christ. You know what that would look like? It would look like a whole church full of people who are willing to live for Christ, which is probably harder than dying for Christ, living consistently for his agenda, for his will, not their own. And he's going to get into that here in just a second. But that's the key That's the key idea. That's why I spent more time there. Okay, so therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. If you are pursuing God and willing to suffer, you're not going to give in to sin so easily. You're going to walk in holiness. As a result of that... They do not okay. Um, they they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. So here's the contrast, right? Um, you you could live the way the pagans live. You live for yourself. Live for the human desires. We all wrestle with those. Those are the desires that are a combination of legitimate and tempting. Okay. 
So, for example, and I always use food because everybody can relate to food. Um, we all need to eat, okay? All right? And we are all tempted, maybe not all, but most of us are tempted to eat more than we should or maybe things we shouldn't eat instead of things that would be better for us. You see what I'm saying? So it's a legitimate desire to hunger. God gave us hunger for a reason so that we would know, oh, I need to do something to alleviate that craving I have, and food does that, but I can go overboard with that. And God's, you know, gluttony is a sin, and so we wouldn't want to give in to that. All right? And so he's saying we need to resist the desires of the flesh and instead follow the desires of the will of God. That's the way that plays out. And when Christ died on the cross, he did just that. What was his fleshly desire? He didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. He prayed in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup, let this cup you know, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, yet not my will but yours be done. And he was praying that because he knew he needed God to strengthen him because he wanted to give in and give up. I mean, the human Jesus of Nazareth did not want to suffer and die for the sins of the world. But God working in him gave him a desire to, yes, I want to obey my father because that's how I show my love for him. And I want to die for humanity, show compassion for those who need it. Okay, that's the motive, love. All right, And he did that because he was willing to suffer. And willing to suffer is that attitude of Christ that he calls all of us to all the time. All right, So then he says, but rather for the will of God. Verse 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Now, pagan is basically a non-believer, okay? Someone who doesn't believe in God and doesn't live as if God's real or matters. They might have gods, but they don't follow the, the, the Lord of the Bible, okay? And then he describes the way they, they, they lived, both the pagans, but also the believers he's writing to in, in 1 Peter. He's writing to believers who used to be unbelievers who used to live this way. How did they used to live? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Okay, that was, He's describing them. He's basically saying, enough already, as, because it sounds like some Christians were still indulging in some of these desires. And he's saying, stop. Do the will of God. Stop giving in to your lustful desires. It's a choice. He doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say you can just snap your fingers and it stops, but he's saying you still need to choose to not do those things and do whatever it takes to slay that sin, to slay those temptations. They're surprised. Okay, so these are the pagans. When you do that, when you change and you say, I'm no longer going to walk that way, I'm going to now follow Christ down the narrow way, this is what happens. These are two things. You have to count the cost in following Jesus. Salvation is free, but following Christ is costly. And if you haven't trusted Christ yet, yes, salvation is free to you. But following Christ will cost you at the same time. Count the cost. They are surprised, that is the pagans, are surprised that you, who've changed your mind and how, who you're living for, do not join them in their reckless and their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. It's like you, you decide, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to continue down the party scene, and, I'm, and your friends are like, why aren't you going to happy hour after work on Friday? I, I heard you're not going anymore. What's, what's up with that? They're surprised. And then when you explain, that it's, you explain your faith and why, this is something I want, I want to walk in holiness, I want to walk in purity. I'm not, I'm not there, I'm not good at that, so this is a temptation for me to do things and to, that I shouldn't do that aren't good for me. And so I'm going to go down this road. And then they start to say, oh, you're going to be one of those, better than us. 
holier than thou. Oh, forgive me. You know, and they, the slander and the mockery, it just, and, it, and you're just like, inside you're just curling up and you just want to die because you're like, that's not why I'm doing this. But that's what they say because that's what they see. Okay, and you say you feel so misunderstood, and you might even try to explain, and they're like, oh, "No, no, no, I understand, right?" And 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 you just and it hurts, okay. And he's saying that's going to happen when you turn and follow Christ faithfully, not just say it, but do it. It's going to come, and that's a cost you need to be willing to count. Okay, and then he continues, and this is where he he tries. He's really trying to encourage Christians. Now, for me, it's a mixed bag. It would encourage me, but it would also sober me. And this is what he says, verse 5. But they, that is those who are heaping abuse and slandering you for turning to do what is good, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Judgment. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. Why? Why? so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in the Spirit of God. He's talking about sharing the gospel through our actions in, the, in, in that there's persecution and suffering that's going to come as a part of that. Okay? It costs us to do what God calls us to do. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. It costs us. Okay? It's worthy of the cost. Now this gets him thinking as far as end times judgment, God showing up. And so that's why he says verse seven and the, the end of all things is near. Now it would be easy for verse seven. It would be easy for us. It would be easiest for us to go. <laughs> this was written 2000 years ago. <laughs> near? Really? Do we have verse seven? Thank you. End of all things is near. There it is. So Peter writes, I think it's in 2 Peter. I didn't look it up, sorry. To God, a thousand years of ours is like a day to him. Okay, so if we go back to Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago, it's like early on the third day to God. I mean, it's just imagery, right? God's outside of time. Like God holds time right here, and everything he sees is now. He, doesn't, he understands past, present, and future, but it's all now, okay, because he's that big. The end is near. And, this, and they all thought Jesus was coming right back, right? Like people were quitting their jobs going, I'm just going to hang out till Jesus gets back. This is awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> I don't need to work because it's, you know, he'll be back anytime now. And, and then they began to realize, oh, he's not coming right back. He could, and they didn't know when. And this is why this is a tension that I think Scripture teaches us and how to live in, our, in these end days, these end times, these last days. He's saying, I want you to live as if he could come back today. I also want you to live as if he could wait another thousand years. I kind of like the number three, three days in the ground, in the tomb. On the third day he rose, and it was early on the third day. But I don't know when he's coming back. Nobody knows. Jesus says, nobody knows. When Jesus was on planet Earth, even he didn't know. He knows now. So we, our perspective, it's, our tendency is to think, yeah, he's coming, but it'll be later. And, and we say this, like we say, when I die, you know, we don't even think of, about Jesus coming back in our, time, in our days. We need, to, we need to hang on to that too. That perspective is important. Because if I sat here and I, I told you, 
Okay, so you shouldn't believe me if I ever say this. But if I knew, if I actually knew when Jesus was coming back, and I said, it's going to be by the end of the year, or maybe let's just say God tells you, you need to be ready for me to come back by the end of the year. Let's do that. That might be a little more palatable. How would you change the way you live 24? Would you change anything? You know, that's something we should think about. You know? How... Would I live the, my last year differently? You could do it this way. You're, you have a, you have a terminal, terminal illness, and the, and, the, and the doctors give you six months. You know, sometimes we outlive those six months. It could be 12. But how, I, I got to believe that you and I would live differently. We would do some things differently in those last, okay? Well, we're not promised tomorrow. So in a sense, that really should help the perspective we should have on how we should live. So he, he makes this shift which is really getting at the question we're trying to answer today. How do I live in light of the end? And that's where he is now. So he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, and he gives us four things that will help us know how to uh, live. Okay? The first one is to be alert and sober of sober mind. To be alert and sober mind. In other words, don't be distracted. Don't, be, uh, don't live with your head in the sand. And this is a real temptation, i got to tell you. I don't like to watch the news because I don't like to get caught up in all the drama that's there. And yet, I want to know what's going on, right? And so, but when I get too caught up in that, then I start to, it's the hand-wringing temptation, right? That was, oh my goodness, who's going to be the next president? Oh my goodness, it's going to be a train wreck. And, and on and on, all the different things, right? When I know how it ends, but I forget. Okay, so we live in light of how we know this plays out for Christians, for all of us. It's just different depending on where you're, what you're trusting in. So to be alert and of sober mind is to basically, we know what sober means, not drunk, okay? So uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And his point is, instead of being under the influence of a lot of alcohol, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is only going to guide you in a direction that is holy and wise. And alcohol is just going to drive you in a direction that's destructive and depressing. Okay, so don't give in to being drunk with it. Don't, don't exceed what, what is going to just mess with your thinking and your judgment. You're just gonna, it's going to slow down and everything's going into slow motion. And so he's saying, be alert and sober-minded. And here's why. So that you may pray. And what should we pray for, right? There's so many things, okay? I, I was sharing with um, some of our leaders on Friday night, and, and the verse that God gave me to share with them was Matthew 6, which is, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that we're tempted to be worried about will be given to you. And, um, and, and so you imagine, and I said, imagine a church where everybody was praying for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that was the priority of your prayers and it was the priority of your actions. It was the priority of your thinking and your conversations and your relationships and your, just your life. And whatever your job is at that job, your priority would be kingdom. In school, if you're a student, your priority would be kingdom. In your home, your priority would be kingdom. I think you and I, if we lived that way, we would also be living in light of the end. And we wouldn't be doing as much hand-wringing because we know how it ends. I mean, it makes sense, right? It makes 
a lot of sense if you believe what the Bible teaches. And if you don't, then it doesn't make sense. And this is why people have a hard time with that, because so many people are blind to what it's saying. They just, or they just hear it and they go, I don't believe it. Which is, that's, you know, that's their choice. That's, they're free to do that. God gives us the freedom. Now, he gives us three other things, all right? This next one is even more. He says, above all, love each other deeply. Now, you could do a Bible study where you went through the New Testament and just looked at all the passages that had anything to do with the phrase, each other or one another. And all of those phrases are referring to how Christians treat Christians, okay? Brothers and sisters in Christ treating one another, okay? And this is just another one of them. Love each other, love one another deeply, okay? Now, what kind of love are we talking about? Okay, we're not talking about a brotherly love, although that's a good love, loyal you know, familial. We're not talking about a romantic love. We're not talking about a sappy love. We're not talking about a I love pizza love. We're talking about an agape love. And that's a Greek word that means sacrificial, unconditional love. Okay? This is the way we're supposed to treat our, um, our earthly family. And believe me, we know that's a challenge sometimes, right? But we're called to love them. But we're called to love one another that way too. And that means that when we see needs, that we need to, we need to realize we are, we are all suffering because this one's needy. And when we hear of needs, we need, to be, we need to realize that, okay, how many believers are in that person's circle of influence? Am I in that circle? What can I do about that? Okay, And he's going to roll right into that even more specifically when he says, um, well, he, I, the answer is because he loves Love covers a multitude of sins. I'll come right back to that. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay? All right, so let me, let me explain this. Why do we love each other deeply? Because love covers a multitude of sins. We know the ultimate example of that is seen in the cross. The love of God demonstrated, and he sent his one and only son, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Okay? And that love of God covered, and you could say the blood of Christ shed by love, motivated by love, covers the sins of the world. You could go back and study the tabernacle and the temple, same principle when it relates to the ark and the mercy seat of God and the, the blood they'd shake over that. Okay, But it's also true when you and I love somebody and we forgive them when they've wronged us. Okay, We all know people who have wronged us, that have hurt us, that have betrayed us, and we hurt and God wants us to forgive them because it still hurts us. As long as we hang on to that, bitterness just takes root and it gets deeper and more, and it's just poison. And he said, I want you to love. And this is why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive those, uh, let's see, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Okay? Because, and that's what love does. It forgives. It cuts those strings. No strings attached. I forgive you. Okay, and, and I would say it doesn't require them to ask for your forgiveness because some people will never think that they need your forgiveness. So you don't wait on them. Now, I'm not saying you go to them and say, I forgive you, and they're gonna, they'll just make a matter, okay? Right? It's, it's like I need, to, I need to make sure that my heart is where it needs to be. And so when they've wronged me, betrayed me, done something I just don't think was, you know, I, I need to... Forgive them, okay, for my benefit, if nothing else. 
okay, for my health. But he's saying this in the context of one another. It's for the health of the church to forgive, okay? It doesn't mean you immediately trust them. It doesn't mean you act like it never happened. In some sense, you do, because the root of forgive is forget. But also, that doesn't mean, you you know, if somebody has abused your kids and you forgive them, you don't immediately let them watch your kids again. You don't ever let them watch your kids again. You know, there's a, right? There, you understand, just because you forgive them doesn't mean that you can trust them with that which they betrayed you over, okay? There's wisdom that has to be a part of that. But God loves reconciliation. And then it's hospitality. So when we think of hospitality, we think of the hospitality industry, which is a watered-down version of biblical hospitality, which is um, blessing strangers. So when I have friends over at, at, for dinner, that's a, a level of hospitality that's good, and, and God is pleased with that. But when I invite folks into my home that, that can't return the favor or that I don't know, maybe I'm even uncomfortable a little bit, that's the kind of hospitality he's talking about. And he's saying, invite them into your home, invite them to eat with you, invite them into your life. Why? Because that's how he shows them Christ. Because you're willing to be vulnerable, right? When we invite somebody to our dinner table, there's vulnerability there. I'm letting them inside my house, my castle, my fortress, the one place I can get away from everybody and just be me, right? It feels almost invasive. It's hard, especially for introverts, right? But all of us, it's hard. I'm not an introvert, and it's hard for me. That's important, though, because it's like, I mean, we, right? Family that we're close to, they're welcome. Why? Because we're safe. We feel safer there, if you do. But imagine what it says to a stranger when you invite them into your home, because they know what it feels like, too. And they feel accepted. And if there's somebody that people don't accept readily, easily, and you accept them, wow, life-changing, okay? And that's why um, one of the criteria for being an elder is that you practice hospitality. That's just one. Yeah, high bar. And then he says, and he, and he says this without grumbling, it's almost like Peter goes, I know you're going to complain about this one, <laughs> right? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, you know. And then he says, this last one, he says, each of you, and he expands on this one, it's a longer one. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. He's talking about spiritual gifts, okay? In a nutshell, a spiritual gift is a gift from the Holy Spirit that every Christian has, at least one, but nobody has them all, okay? And he doesn't break down all the categories. He kind of gives us two broad categories, serving and speaking. But you can break it down to a lot more categories. Paul does this in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. I want to say Peter does it somewhere too. It might be in chapter 5. Um, but then they'll give you all these categories, uh, and those are... Just, again, categories. There's more. I mean, you and I are loaded with spiritual gifts from the Lord, okay? And he gives them to you for the purpose of doing what? Building the body of Christ, to build one another up. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts, okay? You know what the foundation of spiritual gifts is? The foundation to spiritual gifts, which is, points to your ministry, the foundation is the fruit of the Spirit, which points to your maturity or lack thereof. So we like to fixate on the spiritual gifts, and God likes us to fixate on the spiritual fruit, 
Okay, you know what I mean by say spiritual fruit? When we practice flesh out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and there are more. When we flesh those out, when the flesh doesn't want to flesh them out, that's when it's spiritual gift. And that's what, I mean, spiritual fruit. And that fruit points to our maturity. If we don't exhibit that, this is why you have, this is why you have um, popular preachers, say that six times fast, who fall. They have great giftings. God has gifted them, and they are using their gifts. But there's that foundation has got cracks. Okay, Every one of us that does any kind of ministry has that vulnerability that we need to be aware of. We need to recognize if we're not growing in the fruit of the Spirit, then we're going to become vulnerable. And, and of course, the bigger you get and the more popular you get, the more blinded you are to your cracks and your blind spots. And that's true for anything, but especially things that are up front in public. So that's why you pray for, you pray for us that, that do this. Um, so he says, each of us use those gifts that we've received. We use those to serve others. In the, now, the context is serving one another, but it's not limited to believers. Okay? And then he gets into it a little bit more when he says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And I think you see that. When Mark was up here telling, talking about um, giving, you got a sense of, you felt the weight of his words. When, when Casey was speaking about, the, and he brings the verse and he's, he's speaking, you, you get the sense that they've thought about this and they're thinking about what does God have to say and he's trying to say something to us through them. Okay? It's, it's, that's why we like to have lots of different voices because why? Because God speaks a lot of different things through a lot of different people different ways. It takes all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people. And if anyone serves, not just speaks, but if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. Why? And then he's going to tell us why in just a second. We, we rely on God's strength to do what we can't. Okay? So I don't know about you, but my tendency is to want to serve out of my strength instead of when I'm weak. Um, so this particular message was not coming together for me, for example. And I... And I want to be able to get up and I want to deliver it in a way that is clear and orderly and, you know, just something that will be easily heard and well-received, okay? That's important to me, okay? That would be preaching from, that's me thinking about it from my standpoint. I want to do, right? That's Darren. God's like, well, when you fall all over yourself and you say things wrong and you, and you, you, you get your things out of order, I want you to know that I can speak through that because I'm God and you're not. Okay, Moses was a stutterer. I think he stopped stuttering. I think God changed him. That pastor from Pakistan was a stutterer until, and I could tell the story one day, um, until a moment when God challenged him through another person to step up and teach a Bible study on the fly he'd never done before because he was a stutterer. And he started reading scripture without studying and he started teaching the Bible without studying. It's an amazing story. Okay, and this was as a teenager. Okay, so... God wants us to recognize when you speak. It doesn't matter what the context when you speak, right? You can be sitting across the table and, and coaching somebody or counseling somebody or just being a good friend. And God, those words that you're trying to give them of wisdom, they can be are from God when you lean into that. His spirit in you gives you the words you need to say when you need to say them. Okay, he did it for the apostles and he, can, and he does it for us. And he's doing it for me even right now. If he anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Why? So that in all things, under word all, 
in all things, God may be praised, because he's worthy, through Jesus Christ, which is the way he likes to get his praise. He likes to get his praise through his son. He lifts up the son, and then by us praising him, Jesus lifts up the father. Philippians 2, we, could, we didn't read quite that far. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So how do we live in light of the end? Okay. We stay alert and sober-minded so that we can pray. We love each other deeply, right? And he tells us why. Because love covers a multitude of sins, right? We practice hospitality without grumbling. And we use those gifts that God has given us in the power of the Holy Spirit not in our own strength. Let's pray. Lord, it is so much easier to teach this than to live this. I confess I fail miserably often. But your grace is sufficient. You, you, you forgive and you don't quit working on me and you don't quit trying to make me more usable. And so I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your word that gives me the guidance I need. I thank you for your spirit that gives me the power that I need and the love and the fruit of the spirit and the gifts that I get to use. God, I thank you for all of those things because, Lord, without them, I would be just a, a, a noise maker. And so, Lord, thank you that you don't just gift me. You gift all of us in light of the end you give us a perspective that says the world will stand before you. We will all stand before you and answer for what we've done with what you've given us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the humility to humble ourselves before you and believe and receive the gift you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might bring others to God through our willingness to suffer instead of sin in this life that we are in. And God, I thank you that people went ahead of me and did that for me. That's why I'm able to come to you. And Lord, I pray that you would use us recognizing that we're going to suffer, but suffering for good brings glory to God. Lord, help us to understand that that's your goal. In Jesus' name, amen. One more story. So um, this church was founded by, a pastor, by a, a, an attorney. Go figure, right? An attorney. God can do anything. He started this church, and Jimmy Reeves is his name. He's James Reeves is on his sign on 400 North Cedar Street. He still practices in the city. And he started this church as a lay pastor, and he, his parents came into the church pretty early, Faye and Barney. Several years ago, um, while they were all still part of Grace, Barney got some kind of intestinal cancer. I'm not exactly sure what kind of cancer. And it was a long battle. And I remember visiting him once. And this is what next week's about. This is why I want to share the story. He's in the hospital one day. I go to see him. And it's just the two of us. And he's sitting pretty up. I'm picturing this, so I'm just describing. He's sitting in the bed, and the bed is very upright. And this was kind of the way he is. He was a, he was a curmudgeon in a good way, okay? He was, uh, let me say it this way. He was a retired Air Force sergeant, okay? 
all right? And um, very outgoing, and his name is Barney, which is Barnabas, short for Barnabas, which is son of encouragement is what that means, and he was an encourager. He was also very direct, and if he didn't like something, he would tell you he didn't like something and why, and then he'd pray for you. <laughs> so, so Barney's sitting there in the hospital. So Barney and I, for years, we would, I would meet with him one-on-one, and we would, he would write me letters during the week and hand me handwritten letters and envelope on Sunday morning, just encourage he was just, a, he was a, just a, a blessing to our church and to me in particular. And he's sitting there one day, and I, I walk in, and, he's, and he starts to tear up as he's talking to me. And he goes, because he's suffering. He's hurting. Even though he's going through all the treatments and stuff, he's hurting. And he's suffering, and he says, as he tears up, it's like he's in the room with me. And he's talking about Jesus. It's like he's in the room with me. I've never felt closer to my Savior than this week. And he was, you could see the joy on his face. It was beautiful. I don't know that I've seen that. And that's because he experienced the glory of God in that hospital room. Okay? As he's suffering more than he's ever suffered before. Why do I share that with you? Because Peter's going to tell us next week the relationship between suffering and glory. Okay? So I hope you'll, you'll bring somebody that maybe needs to hear that, and we'll do that. In the meantime, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where our Savior suffered, and then God lifted him up in glory. That's the rest of Philippians 2.5 that we didn't read, or 2.5 through 11 follows it up with God exalted him to the highest place so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every, uh, in above earth, in the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like they can't keep quit giving each other glory, all right? And, and the only time in eternity that suffering will be a part of anything God has created is while we're here on earth. You realize it started in Genesis 3, and it will end in Revelation 21. And we're in there. We're in the story. So don't you think we probably need to make sure we're preparing ourselves for how to live in that gap? I think so. In these last days. And, it's, and that's like Book of Acts on. That's where we are. So let's stand and sing. Musicians, if you'll make your way, go ahead and stand. And those who are serving our Lord's Supper at the table, we do that every week. Because this is what Jesus wants us to remember. That God's love was demonstrated in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ suffered and died for us. There's that glory and suffering again.